Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe, and in a moment, we'll be meeting my host body for the week. You see, every week, for a couple of hours, I find that my head has been removed from my body and placed onto the shoulders of another friend and movie lover. Together, we're given a theme, sometimes specific and sometimes vague, and then we each have to pick a movie that fits that theme, watch, and then discuss. And today, we have a very special guest that I'm pretty excited to talk to, so let's just get right into it. My guest and host body today is Gary Hewitt of the Choose Film Podcast. Gary, how's it going? Yeah, it's, it's going good. I'm glad to be here and I'm really excited. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited to have you here as well. Uh, I guess I should just say really kind of quickly how we, we came across each other is uh, Twitter. I would not have expected it before 2020, but Twitter, a site that I've been on since I think, I think since it, it went live, I have never used it until this year. And it's been one of the best things I could have done with my, my time in lockdown here. It's really connected me to a lot of people in, in my area, but around the world that I, I never would have met otherwise. And it's really been kind of a lifeline, as much of a hellscape as that site can be. It's been a real lifeline uh, this year for me. And one of the reasons I'm actually doing this podcast. Yeah, I totally agree as well. It's quite its own beast, and I'm still getting the hang of it myself, but it's been so good just to use it to connect with other guest hosts, other people that maybe work in the film industry, and just actually just to keep kind of sane, so to speak, whilst <laughs> we are not allowed out the house. <laughs> I'm actually not sure how you guys are doing over there in Scotland, but like here in LA, we're just like the epicenter of it, and we can't do anything I, we don't. We we just have to stay inside and hunker down, and it's been like this for like nine months now. Yeah, we well, whilst recording this podcast, I would say that we are doing it in tiers. So from tier one being like everything's kind of light and almost back to normality, and tier four is like stay in your house unless you need some bread or some milk, and we are in tier four. <laughs> That's kind of how we've been living our life. Uh, for, for a while there, like the most we would do is I take my daughter for a walk for a couple of hours every day and we go to a park and we play on the grass and we're not around other people. And the other only other time I leave the house is to go grocery shopping and I've got to do that tomorrow. And it's like, oh my gosh, I'm looking at all the numbers and it's the first time I'm like, people talk about living in fear and it's the first time I've actually been nervous to go out. Yes. And to be honest though, being in lockdown and this pandemic to try and look at the positives me and my co-host Ashley we wouldn't have set up our podcast without this insane thing happening in the world so we try to look at it as a positive where we have managed to create something for people to listen to and I guess it's kind of a form of entertainment for film fans so we are trying to look at the positives it's hard though <laughs> it's hard to find the balance between counting the positives in your life and realizing that this isn't the way it's been for everybody. I mean, not to start the show on like a, a real down note. Really quickly, why don't we, uh, sorry, why don't you just uh, tell the listeners a bit about your podcast, the Choose Film Podcast? Yeah, so I, so to start off a wee bit about me, I guess, to get into the podcast, I am a filmmaker and writer from Scotland. I've been dabbling in the industry for about 10 years and we were supposed to shoot a TV pilot 
in May of this year and obviously that didn't happen so me and one of the actors that I have worked with in the past we were looking for something to do to keep his sane I guess but still dabbling in the film world so we decided to put a podcast together that basically the guest comes on and we give the guest a theme so usually with the same theme for about six episodes so we have done first features which would have been either an actor's first film or a director's first film or a writer's and then the host picks a film based on that theme so we have done first features and we have just wrapped up feel good which was films that just have a feel good vibe and then we're moving on to uh, Scottish films so it has to have some sort of Scottish element in there whether it be a Scottish director filmed in Scotland sc Scottish actor and yeah and we all go on we give three positive points on the film which can be really fun because if you hate the film <laughs> you still have to find positive things to say I guess that's because as a filmmaker I would hate someone to go on and just rip into my own film. So we try and always find the positive points in any film. And we agreed that you can't say the end credits are the best part because that just doesn't count. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that's it. It gives the guests a little bit of time to promote themselves if they want to. But a lot of people have just enjoyed coming on because it gives them someone else to talk to out with their own house. You know, that's one positive for most of the guests that have said it's a passion of talking about film and it's just nice to talk to someone else that you don't normally talk to. Exactly. Yeah, the, these are the longest conversations I've had outside of my household since the lockdown. I can't even call it quarantine anymore since the lockdown started. Yeah, I just went months without having any conversation without anybody outside of the family in this house. Yeah. And yeah, now I'm having these like one and a half hour, two hour longer discussions and it's great uh, i have to say one of the things that when i when i first started looking into your podcast that scared me was how similar our themes what's the word i'm looking for <laughs> our shows are yeah like in, the concept yeah the concept that's it, it it's a bit it's a bit different I, it, it's it's different enough but i was looking at them like oh man they, they kind of had the same thought because i didn't want to have a negative podcast i want to talk about movies that i really love and I also yeah. wanted to talk with guests about movies they love, which is why we each, I want each of us to bring a movie that we kind of are passionate about in some way. Yeah, and our concepts are similar, but I would say the structure are very different. So we, we have our theme. Our theme today is man versus machine. And so we're going to take a really quick break. It'll only be a couple of seconds for you listeners. And we're going to come back and we'll talk about our first of two movies. Ten years ago, a machine from the future was sent to kill Sarah Connor. It failed. I'll be back. But this time, there are two. One programmed to destroy, the other to protect. Hasta la vista, baby. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Terminator 2. Judgment Day. Rated R. Starts Wednesday, July 3rd at a theater near you. In Terminator 2, Judgment Day, the wildly successful sequel to 1984's The Terminator, Skynet is once again trying to stop John Connor from uniting humans in a fight against machines in the future by sending machines back in time to kill him. And once again, the human resistance sends their own protector back to try and save John Connor. But in this film, 
Arnold Schwarzenegger, the villainous cybernetic organism from the first movie, is the protector, and Robert Patrick, as the updated T-1000 made of liquid metal, is the unstoppable, unflappable menace that will never stop hunting them. Now, this movie came out in 1991. I saw this in theaters when I was, I was 13, so this might actually have been my first R-rated theatrical movie. I had seen The Terminator by this time, but this movie was an event in a way that like even the big spectacles of today can't quite manage just how much this movie was everywhere and everybody was talking about it certainly all the kids i knew but first like what's your history with the movie Uh, i'm clearly this is your choice you've seen this many times i'm assuming yes i've seen this film at one point this film was my favorite film that has changed over the years so just talking about r-rated films I used to go to my uncle's house quite a lot and he would put on R-rated films like There's No Tomorrow. Over here, we just call it an 18 because you need yeah. to be 18 or older to to see it. But he was showing me things like A Nightmare on M Street, Chucky, all these films. And I must have been 10, 10, 11 years old. And he put on Terminator 2. And I seen Terminator 2 before I seen Terminator 1. And... I loved it from beginning to end. Now, what was quite ironic was my uncle was this really tall man with this presence in the room as well. So I related a lot to my uncle and Arnold Schwarzenegger. So from that moment, I was a fan of Big Arnie and I was going to see any film that I could as long as I was of age and could get into the cinema. So from that time that I seen Terminator 2, I was a fan of Terminator and I was a fan of Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'd seen Terminator 1. I mean, it was it was another one of those movies. Like you, it was shown to me. I would have been a bit younger. I would have been like a 10 or 11 as well. It didn't quite blow me away like it would later. But Terminator 2, man, like I remember seeing that in theaters and excitedly talking about all my friends. I remember boring adults to tears just recounting the plot and what my favorite parts of the movie were like unprompted, like, oh, I just saw this movie last night. What what occurred to me with this is this is an R-rated movie, but I think like 10 to 13, that's like the perfect time to see this movie. It is very violent. There's a lot of action, but it it's not very gory. Not like the first Terminator was. There's gore in it at its huge points, but not throughout. Certainly yeah. not like Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, and to be honest, the body count drops significantly from Terminator 1 to Terminator 2. And you're right, it's not as gory. And maybe that's down to most of the injuries are from the like T-1000s stabbing weapons. So there's not going to be this real explosion of bullets spraying everywhere. There's not a lot of that. And when there is, it's usually more from uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character. So obviously we'll get into this, but he's told not to kill. So right away the body count's going to come down. And as a kid as well, it's really interesting that you say 10, 11, 12 is a really good time to watch this film, and I totally agree. But you learn to appreciate it more as you get older because those scenes in the mental hospital, they kind of bored me when I was younger because it was two people at a desk mostly talking. But now, as I'm older, I appreciate, you know, what, Sarah Connors went through with the PTSD and stuff like that and how no one believes her. So 
I now appreciate those scenes as I've got older. So you can almost watch this film with two points of view, your childhood nostalgia, and then just it's a kick-ass movie. No, that, that's true. I think, you know, it, like like all the best movies that wow you when you're a kid that stand the test of time, the older you get, the more you can appreciate the stuff that you loved, but also the stuff that you maybe weren't really too keen on as a kid. Because yeah, those scenes, in there are some scenes in the beginning that are a little bit, to a kid's eyes, maybe dull because they're just a lot of conversation and it's exposition. But watching it this time, and I haven't seen this movie in years, and we'll get to that in a minute, but watching it this time, it it is impressive how he gets everybody up to speed. Uh, the plot for the first one is recapped in like dialogue in the beginning, but he gets everybody up to speed with what these characters have been up to in the last 10 years, introduces all of these other new characters and kind of moves all of the characters together to points where they're going to meet in a way that is always propulsive. The movie is always going forward. When I think of James Cameron, especially this movie, but when I think of James Cameron as a filmmaker, the thing I think of is that shot of the semi-truck going into the canal chasing John Connor just when it comes off of the overpass. It's so propulsive. It's really impressive. It's muscular. It's kind of a little over the top, but it is always also moving forward and not just in terms yeah. of like action escalating, but keeping the story moving. Everything is always moving. This movie is over two hours long and it doesn't feel like it. It's constantly like a thrilling movie, even as an adult, all these years later. So just to talk really quickly about Terminator 1 as well, it gives you a lot of exposition, but it does it during the car chases. So once Kyle Reese finds Sarah Connor and they're in the car, then they're in the car park trying to break into a new car, that is when you're getting told the story of the future and of the Terminators. So they don't stop to take a breath to tell you this. It's during these chase scenes, and that's what keeps the adrenaline going and the film flowing really nicely. And he does try the same during Terminator 2, but I feel there's maybe one or two scenes where it slows down to spill the beans, so to speak. Uh, one of them is the phone box scene, where they phone the foster parents, and then, you know, the two mechanics are fixing the cars and come over. That's one scene. And the other scene, and this is where it might be interesting, is did you watch the extended edition or did you watch the theatrical cut? I watched the theatrical cut this time. Yeah, that could be quite nice then because I watched the extended one, so that'll give us different points of view. But the second, the second scene is when they open up the T-100 or T-101. It's got two names. But they open up Arnold's head and take out the chip and reset the switch and to me that scene although it slows down I feel like that scene is needed and I guess I can go into that when we're discussing it but I feel very strongly that scene should have remained in the theatrical cut yeah I didn't watch it this time because I don't own this movie and I I don't know why considering how much I loved it and love it and how big it was how many times I've seen this movie I think it just entered kind of the cultural lexicon in a way. And I've talked about this on the show before with other movies where it is, it is just kind of a part of culture so much that you feel like you've seen it recently, even if you haven't. Like I haven't actually sat down and watched this movie in, well, at least 10 years, maybe longer, probably longer. And yet it feels like I just saw it a week ago because it, you, you see references to it everywhere. Even today, and it's like almost 30 years. Well, it is pretty much 30 years later. Yeah. 
it's still being referenced. It, it It's such a, a big cultural touchstone that you just kind of, it seeps into everything and you think you're more familiar with it than you are. Yeah, and I would say in 15 years, the same will be said about The Dark Knight, you know, because The Dark Knight came out, everyone spoke about it, everyone still is speaking about it, but it'll be one of those ones where you might not put it on for five to 10 years, but you'll know every line, every scene, every beat of the film because it's so it's, it's just everywhere no i agree i agree i was thinking about that that's that's a good point because i was thinking mm -hmm. after i watched this movie that i can't remember the last time there was a movie like this that was that was such a a cultural touchstone like we we get blockbusters there are certainly huge blockbusters movies that are more profitable these days than terminator but i just think that the spectacle isn't going to wow audiences the same. And part of that is just CGI. We, we were so used to seeing directors do whatever they want that it isn't as impressive when you see like there's a, there's that chase scene towards the end of the movie where I was reading about, it, they, they laid 10 miles of electrical cables to keep it lit for that, that scene when the T the T2 is after them in the, not T2, sorry, the T1000 is after them in the helicopter and they're in the SWAT van. And we can see with our eyes, we can feel it in the movie, the difference between that and the CGI destruction in any of the Avengers movies, as much as I like those. But part of that is just, we're never gonna be wowed like we were with Terminator. I don't know what the next change would have to be for us to be that wowed. But also this movie being kind of for kids as R-rated as it is, and I said like it's not, it's violent but not gory. It's also almost completely sexless. There's, there's nobody even kisses in this movie. And it's told for pretty much through the eyes of a kid. Uh, Sarah Connor, Linda Hamilton is the one who narrates it, but everything in the movie is kind of seen through John Connor's eyes. And he's supposed to be 10 in this movie. He was 13 at the time it was filmed, and, but he's supposed yeah. to be 10. This is almost an R-rated kids movie, and they don't make them like this anymore. Like R-rated movies are either now, either just like very extreme that wouldn't be fun for kids or are just kind of, maybe a little bit adult and mature in a way that they would bore kids. It's interesting you say that because over the last few years, the only big R-rated films are probably Deadpool and Logan. And okay. both of them, both of them, I guess, are R-rated, but they are for kids because of they're made by Marvel or Fox, but they still don't have the same impact that something like Terminator 2 did all those years ago. You're absolutely right though, like <laughs> those films, I mean, let's look at Deadpool real quickly then. It took the proof of concept trailer to be leaked online for the studios to even touch it. So they wouldn't want to do an R-rated superhero film. They were they were backed into a corner, so to speak, after there was an uproar of fans who wanted to see this Deadpool film as an R-rated film. And then without that, you wouldn't have had the Logan film, the R-rated Wolverine film either. So maybe maybe this is the spawn of new R-rated films coming our way. That being said, again, the new Terminator film that was out last year, they never made it R-rated, did they? So they yeah. didn't learn from their mistakes, so. <laughs> this is a conversation I kind of go both ways on because as a as a kid, I was I was too like skittish as a kid. I couldn't handle horror movies, and now horror is kind of my favorite 
genre. But I like the fact now that I have kids and my oldest is a teenager now, but when she was younger, I liked that they were making so much PG-13 horror in that I could just, we could watch stuff. I knew I, there was stuff I could share with her. I'm, I'm happy it's out there. I'm happy Blumhouse keeps making all these PG-13 horror movies just in a way that keeps kids, gives kids something. Because, you know, people who say that, that all horror is crap PG-13 now, they're not looking very far. There's so much good yeah. stuff out there. And I'm fine with there being stuff for kids. But I also feel like studios are too afraid of an R rating these days in a way that like you can do it like Terminator 2 or even Lethal Weapon, which was a little bit, I think Lethal Weapon movie, uh, at least part one and two were probably a little bit more extreme than this. But they like they were still okay for younger teens. Like the R rating was is kind of our, it's always arbitrary, the ratings board. But yeah, they, they're a bit afraid of that. And they keep talking about it like, oh, Deadpool is going to bring back our rating, but it didn't like the matrix is going to bring back an R rating of it. It didn't. We'll see about the next one, but it's just, uh... yeah. Yeah. I mean, my only problem, I guess, with it is usually the writer or the director or the writer director knows what kind of film they want to make going in. They know if they want to make PG 13 or R rated. And then as the film is getting made, it starts to be, pulled back to like a PG-13 and then through that you're going to lose character arcs, you're going to lose these scenes that maybe tell a different type of story and then they need to twist and turn and basically it's almost like they then have to screw a screw into a hole that wasn't wide enough and it wasn't the right shape but they're going to force it to fit just to get out there. One film that was out that I managed to catch just before lockdown was the new mutants, the X-Men. And it was supposed to be set all in this mental hospital. And it was supposed to be R rated when it came out. And it's been through rewrites after rewrites, after reshoots, after reshoots. And you can just tell watching that film that it's almost a sloppy mess. And that's not me slating it because I guarantee at the beginning of that project, there was a great film there. And it's just, it's gone. It ceases to exist. It's it's funny you mentioned that one, especially because as of this recording, that that is my next episode. My next episode on, on Friday is going to be New Mutants. To keep it back to uh, how this is a kind of a move, kind of a movie for kids is Edward Furlong in this movie. It's his first movie. He had a kind of a short career for a while and he's back. He's in, been in stuff, but his, his time as kind of a name actor was just a very brief couple of years. I, I don't think his character has really aged that well. I, I don't want to blame it on him because I think, you know, he's a 13-year-old kid. He's doing a, a pretty good job with what they're giving him to do. But so much of the movie's kind of cheesy parts are, are left on his shoulders. Like when he's teaching the Terminator slang, I will admit I, after that, I, I said hasta la vista, baby, a lot after I saw this movie as 13. But that's not that's not real slang. And it's just it, now as, a, as an adult watching it, I'm like, oh, rolling my eyes a little bit about it, about it. And uh, yeah, like I said, I think he's doing a good job. He's not like an annoying kid actor, but it's just his bits in the movie are are just a little bit. Uh, they veer a bit towards the the hokey side. And, and yeah. they're not as interesting to me anymore. Well, yeah, the, I think Hollywood didn't know what to do with this character after Terminator 2. I mean, they've had multiple attempts at John Connor. And 
I don't think they've got it right. Now, maybe they've not got it right because Edward Furlong did a really good job. I'm not saying he did because there is flaws in that, but it's interesting because, well, first of all, with the, the slang coming from Scotland, as a kid, I didn't know what the slang was, where John mm-hmm. Connor was from. So that kind of still worked for me. But as we said earlier, it's told the whole film is told through his eyes. And that's a lot of weight on a child actor, I guess. So you could look at it that way. And coming from Terminator, which was a huge success, everybody was expecting the same, but more and bigger and better. So that's a lot of weight for a child actor. And I actually love how his voice starts breaking through the film, like when he tries to scream, because again, that gives him this this youthful age that children can relate to, but also the character has got a lot of weight in his shoulders as well as the child actor. So for me, it works. So he's got the fact that everything his mum has taught him, all her beliefs that he's been taught to forget about are coming true. There's killer robots after him. He's got this looming threat of the end of the world and he has to become this leader. That's a lot of weight for a child character, but also a lot of weight for a child actor. I don't know, like, again, that scene that was removed from it, I think that's where, that's John Connor's best performance, or sorry, um, Edward Furlong's best performance, and it was removed. And I think when that is removed, his character does become a bit cheesy. It's almost like every chance he gets, it's like, whoa, huh, tough man. And it's very, I don't know, yeah, it can become a bit unrealistic. You know, I think there's a bit where he works out that Arnold Schwarzenegger is a Terminator and he's like, this is intense. It's like, would a child say that? I don't know. Maybe. Like I said, I don't think he does get a, a bad performance in this. And I have to admit, as a 13-year-old myself watching this, I thought it was super cool. <laughs> I was, I, 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 I think he's actually my favorite representation of John Connor, uh, even though, you know, Christian Bale and Salvation, I think I prefer Edward Furlong in this to apples and oranges. Like, like I said, I don't think he's giving a bad performance, but it's just some of the stuff when he's talking, like when he is talking to the, the Terminator about crying and the Terminator's like, what's wrong with your eyes? It's, it's okay. It's just this line of just this side of being too cheesy, but it, his parts do veer a bit towards that in a way that I'm always like a little bit, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure how to describe it because I do like his performance. I do like the portrayal. It, it just, it, it's, it's the one aspect of the movie that hasn't held up for me as well as other parts of the movie. Well, it's, it's what he's got to play with, like you said, but I also, I can't believe I'm going to actually slag this film because I picked it, but it also doesn't even make sense for the character anyway. Like, there's that scene where they've just broken Sarah Connor out of the hospital and they're in the car, John Connor's crying, and Arnold Schwarzenegger says to him, what's wrong with your eyes? And he says nothing and pretends to wipe his eyes. And then it goes like two scenes later and Arnold Schwarzenegger saying to Sarah Connor, I've got detailed files on human anatomy. And it's like, but you didn't know that he was crying two scenes ago. It doesn't make any sense anyway, but it's obviously to build to that big scene at the end where he's like, I now know why you cry. And that it's obviously to build to that, but... Yeah. 
it's good. I, I don't know why I'm trying to like pick it apart, maybe, but it 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 still <laughs> it still is good. I will say the effects, obviously, they're very I don't want to say outdated, but they there are more impressive visual effects in from the CGI side these days, but these are still that period where they were getting used to it, but also they didn't quite trust it with everything. And so it's just like, well, we're going to use it sparingly. Obviously, Stan Winston's robot designs are a huge part of this, his, his actual uh, animatronics and puppets. But the, the T-1000, even though it kind of looks a little bit artificial, of course, it does look like computer graphics, it is still very eerie seeing it come up out of the floor or seeing it morph into Robert Patrick kind of seamlessly, even though it's clearly a digital character. It turns immediately into Robert Patrick in a way that it, it doesn't, it doesn't look, well, I mean, it doesn't look fake, but it, it's, it's still very impressive looking there. There's a, like, it's amazing what they were able to do in 1991 yeah. with these graphics. I mean, I say the graphics still hold up compared to some stuff that's coming out today. The one scene that, I think it falters on as that same scene where he's asking what's wrong with your eyes and the background outside the car, the green screen is oh, yeah. almost, it's, it's, it's really bad. It's, it's quite atrocious. I almost had a physical reaction to after as impressive as everything has been to see this very kind of like rudimentary rear projection while they're driving. Like all of a sudden they're in a old Alfred Hitchcock movie driving it was yeah. It was it was shocking, but you're right. Uh, I'm sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. No, the only thing I was going to say is the effects. The especially at the start when we see the the future that we've already seen in Terminator One, but when it comes back to it again, the effects and the looks and the feel of the future scenes they really upped their game with all that. So it starts off with just a close up of the the burnt out cars on the motorway, and you can hear the wind howling. And then it pans across and you get all the skills just layered on on the road. And then that metal foot comes down and crushes the skill. Everyone remembers that shot. And I, I guess that's because the effects do hold up on those scenes. I would say that the T-1000 gets away with its liquid type graphics because in a way that's what it is, isn't it? It's this molding, liquidifying being that can just transform and almost can look a bit glitchy i don't know but i mean we have to give it credit for its effects i guess because it did win the oscars for it and we are still getting stuff like sharknado 56 <laughs> and the effects just aren't there so <laughs> no i will say that there are effects in this movie and it's the t1000 is one of them i think what i'm saying about it looking a little bit dated. It doesn't outweigh the fact that it is blended as part of the environment in a way that a lot of CGI is not. So it actually does feel like a physical presence, even when you know at this point it isn't. It does still feel a part of it every scene that it's in. And you're right that there are effects in this that look much better than movies that came out last year. And I'm not talking like, well, like Wonder Woman just came out as we're recording this a few days ago. Uh, over mm -hmm. here, did you, were you able to see it? I've not seen it yet, but it is out, yeah. Okay, so it came out here, and I'm not going to say anything about the quality of that movie, but, because I know it's very divisive right now, but there are 
effect shots in this movie that it's shocking that it went out like this. When you look back at Terminator 2 in 1991, 29 years ago, and everything in it is much more impressive and the effects just aren't there for a lot of these scenes. Yeah, and I I think as well, it comes down to how the camera's used when they're putting CGI in. So one example that I would say is the main fight scene at the end of the first Black Panther film or the only Black Panther film. Um, at this and point. At this point. And the two characters are in their Panther costumes and they're fighting down in the caves and they're almost like rolling through the air as CGI characters and the camera's rolling with them. So almost subconsciously, I think the human eye goes or the human mind goes, a camera can't do that. Never mind if those characters can. And so that can take you almost out of it, the way the camera moves with the characters, I feel. They try and take you on this roller coaster ride that makes it feel unnatural. But with Terminator, a lot of those shots of the T-1000 morphing or changing, the camera's quite static and you watch that character transform and come towards you. So I feel like maybe maybe that's part of it. Also, the music when the T-1000 is about, it's that doom, doom, and that adds that sense of dread that you were talking about as well. It's a lot about, about it is the physicality because the T-1000 is pure CGI for some scenes. Mm -hmm. but almost everything else was done through through some form of some form of trickery it was done in camera and i think about all those like stunts the just the amount of stunts in this movie of people like that helicopter actually flew under an underpass incredibly yeah. dangerous <laughs> the cars are exploding as people are running away from them and it's all controlled to a point but it it looks real even when uh, there's a scene at the the um the cyberdyne building where Arnold is walking out to make a path for everybody and he's just being ripped to shred by bullets. And you can see that is a mannequin. It, yeah. it, it isn't incredibly yeah. obvious, but you see in a couple of scenes, just the way it's not moving or it is moving is not human. And yet you still get the same visceral reaction from it as if it was a human because it is a physical thing. I've got a saying, it's not my saying, but it's one I believe. And it's, if you can get it in the camera, if you can get the shot that you're looking for in the camera, get it in the shot. And if you can't, bring in the CGI. And Yoda in Attack of the Clones, when he does the whole CGI battle, it looks CGI. But then you look at Baby Yoda in The Mandalorian, that's all puppets. And it looks fantastic. And everybody's loving it. And they'll be flying off the shelves, all the toys of it, because it looks more relatable than this green thing bouncing about fighting, you know? It's like, if you can get it with puppeteers and stuff like that, people will support it more, I believe. There's something tactile about a real, you know, real things. Like, it's why the best CGI that we can think of is the one are the ones that blend it with physical things like Jurassic Park. That was still mostly animatronics and they used CGI to augment it and it still looks great. I just wrote down, obviously, as technology versus nature, and like, what is the film trying to tell us, or what is like James Cameron trying to tell us? And I think it is, it's almost a warning about how we use technology and what the future will hold if we're not careful. And there's two lines in the films that, for me, state that, and it's the classic line: "There is no fate but what we make uh, for ourselves." 
And that's basically, to me, if we're not careful with technology, what, what path are we going to go down? And then the other line that states that path is, the Terminator says, it's in your nature to destroy yourselves. And I believe that those two lines are really ironic because as technology has advanced, that's what's helped James Cameron in his career in making <laughs> films, you know. But there's some interesting things in there. And one of the characters for me that kind of shows this technology versus nature or family or humanity, whatever you want to call it, is Dyson. He's the one that's almost the, the man in the middle. He can't separate his time between technology and his family and his wife's got a line in it it's something like why is all this important it's when she's talking about the tech she says why did we get married and have kids your mind is in here and it doesn't love you like we do and i think that shows the difference all this technology that we've got but it can't it can't love you it can't be there like a family and this is the killer point on this is he has to sacrifice himself to stop the technology he's created to save, well, I guess his family, but the rest of the world. I think that's just really interesting. That's basically, I think, that character, that's the reason that character exists in this film. The counterpoint to that, it's in your nature to destroy yourself, is Linda Hamilton, uh, Sarah Connor's voiceover near the end, that the Terminator could learn to go against its nature the terminator could learn to value humanity so maybe there's hope for people as well it's kind of a dark hope it's a little bit cynical in that like oh it's this robot was able to learn this why can't we kind of thing but yeah it, it, the movie does end with hope and i know in the, the extended edition it ends with even more hope right it has that little post like the the future scene where the judgment day hasn't happened yeah, and she's a lot older, but she's sitting in the the playground of her dreams. So in the dreams, it was all this explosion from the nuclear fallout, but she's now sitting there as an, uh, an elderly woman. And so it's obviously basically trying to tell us that Judgment Day didn't happen and they, they saved it, so to speak. Well, I'm, on, I'm of two minds of that ending because I, I do like that ending in, it, in that it would seem to stop the ambitions for another sequel and we got yes. a lot of unnecessary sequels to this and yet i i prefer the theatrical more ambiguous ending there's that hope that maybe we can change it but not we're not certain that we can change it and basically i think sarah connor learns that technology isn't the problem it's humans and it's us that have to adapt and well we change and evidently in the world we're in now we we've just kept going and kept advancing with our technology anyway. But there's another few things that I noticed this time watching it that almost, it goes with this technology versus nature and technology's almost constantly blocking their path on their mission. So, or assisting in the Terminator, the T-1000's mission. So for instance, the computer in the police car is what guides the T-1000 directly to the foster home. And, You've got this famous shot of it's in the shopping mall and the T101 is going down this the the corridor and he flips the box of roses to reveal the shotgun. And you've got that famous shot of the the book crushing the rose. And to me, that's symbolic for technology just crushing nature. But there's a few other things in there as well, like John Connor's bike won't start to let him escape the T1000. 
there's the amount of high-tech security that our heroes need to get past to steal the chip and the robot arm and destroy the Cyberdyne building. And also, obviously, our technology can't stop the Terminator, but the molten lava at the end can, which is almost this form of nature. So it's like nature's going to win. You've got the hospital scenes where CCTV and electronic locks are what stops Sarah Connor trying to escape. So she needs to almost escape this technology in the building she's in to, to reach freedom. And then on the opposite side, there's nature that's helping guide our heroes' paths. So you've got the dogs barking when they know a Terminator is about. You've got Sarah's dreams of the end of the world, which sets her on a goal. And you've got Sarah trying to save her son. You've got John trying to save his mum. You've got teaching the Terminator to be more human. Um, and then obviously there's trying to save Dyson as well. Um, so there's a lot in there about how family and nature are stronger than technology. And it's Sarah's humanity at the end is why she can't pull the trigger to kill uh, Dyson, you know, even though she became this almost this cold-hearted killing machine. There's there's like so many things in there I want to I want to jump off on, but you're right that this movie does end with a family coming together to stop the future threat. You know, obviously John, Sarah, and the Terminator have formed a little family unit here, and they brought Dyson into it. I, yeah. I want to talk just a minute. I can't believe I didn't bring it up. Joe Morton as Dyson maybe one of the best, most iconic death scenes I can think of. I, yes. like just before it happened, I remembered, oh my gosh, in just a minute, we're going to see it. And there is something so impressive, so kind of, kind of heartbreaking about how he is holding on to that dead man's trigger and his breath is coming in these really shallow gasps and his eyes are really wide. He, he gives a good performance the rest of this movie as well. But that death scene, he plays it so well. It, it is such, such an iconic moment. And how he, he warns the yeah. SWAT team coming in, like they have just however much time to get out before he, he can't hold it anymore. Yeah, he's, he's fantastic in it. And another fun fact is that's actually Hank from Breaking Bad that plays the main SWAT member. Oh, nice. Dean Norris? So, oh, interesting. Yes, yes. Watching this movie, for, for a movie I haven't seen in forever, it's amazing how many of the characters and performances I just recognized immediately. They, they're so indelible. Like the, the, the security guard that gets killed at the, um, after he gets the cup of coffee at the psychiatric hospital. Yeah. And it, the Terminator, he steps over the Terminator and the, the T-1000, it comes up out of the floor. You know, those are, those are twin actors. But the, it's a performance. Like I remembered all the lines. This movie is just, is in a way, just burned into my brain. <laughs> Yeah, and it's also Sarah Connor's, uh, sorry, Linda Hamilton's twin at the end as well, when there's two of them. And in the scene that's deleted, so I quickly run through it, they basically decide to reset the switch on the Terminator so as that he can learn more about humans and how we act and try to become more human. But the way they did it was the in this in the film they use a mirror to see what they're doing so that they can open up the Terminator's head and remove the switch. But they kept getting the camera on the mirror. So they actually decided to build a wall and where the mirror should be, it's actually a hole. 
And basically what Linda Hamilton's working on is a model of Arnold Schwarzenegger. And at the other side of the hole is the real Arnold Schwarzenegger and Linda Hamilton's twin sister. So it's a really cool effect how to do it. So instead of using a mirror, even though there's supposed to be a mirror in the story, it's actually a hollowed out wall, which I think is really, really well done. And then she shows up, her twin sister shows up uh, later, the T-1000 pretends to be yeah. Another moment I really wish they had kept in was how the T-1000 is glitching after he gets hit with the ni uh, liquid nitrogen. Yeah, it's fantastic. He, starts, he can't like, he can't stop himself from kind of forming into whatever he's touching. So that's how John Connor realizes that the T-1000 is the one pre is pretending to be his mother as he looks down yeah. and sees that her foot is blending into the, into the floor. Yeah. There's something else I find really ironic in the film, and it's when the T-1000 uh, shows up at the foster home and he's in the police car and it says on the side of the police car to protect and serve. Mm -hmm. And I find it really ironic because obviously he's there to kill, but also this technology probably was built to protect and serve and it's done the opposite. So there's some irony in just that text there as well. And then a few scenes later, again, when they're in the shopping mall and the T-1000 looks over at the mannequin and it's this silver mannequin that looks identical to the T-1000 when he's about to morph. And we don't know that he can do that at this point. So it's it's nice as some foreshadowing of what's to come without throwing it in our face. Yeah, exactly. And so all of the advertising of this movie gave away the fact that Arnold Schwarzenegger was the good guy this time. Like, yeah, I mean, I knew it going in. It didn't, it didn't ruin my enjoyment of it, but it is strange that they did that considering the movie for the first, um, not quite half an hour, but the very long passage in the beginning, it's yeah. kind of playing coy with that. You're not, you're supposed to think that Arnold Schwarzenegger is there to kill John Connor, even though Robert Patrick is completely creepy he always looks evil even when he's trying to be friendly with the foster family yeah it's it's crazy and they still haven't learned from their mistakes because when they released the trailer for terminator genesis john they showed that john connor was like part machine and it's like no just if we didn't know that going in we might have actually enjoyed that film a wee bit more not as I, not as much as this but no, I went to Terminator Genesis. I was really excited for Genesis because I saw all of the trailers and I thought, if they're showing all of this crazy stuff in the trailer, I can't wait to see what else is in the movie. And there was nothing else in the movie. It was all yeah. just what you saw in the trailer, all the, the twists. It was, I cannot believe they did it. It was ridiculous. It was crazy. There was the phone box scene that we spoke about quickly earlier as well. That's a really good scene because it's the only time that both Terminators actually speak to one another in the whole film and they impersonate other people to do that. So yeah. Arnold is pretending to be John Connor and the T-1000, Robert Patrick, is pretending to be the foster mum. It's really, really good because it... Yes, uh, from Aliens as well. And it's interesting because you hear the dog barking and you've got Xander Berkeley, who's the, the dad, and you can tell from her face that she's really, he's really annoying her. And then you just see her shoulder come up and you just hear this like noise and you don't know what's happened at this point at all. And it's not until after the phone call that the camera pans to the right and you just see the blade for the first time coming out of the arm. 
And at that point, first time watching it, if you hadn't seen the trailers, you'd be like, what is going on? This is amazing. So it's another point where they they spoil it, you know, and these directors and these writers are doing as much as they can to keep the audience guessing of what's happening. And then the trailer, um, yeah, ruins it. <laughs> this is James Cameron's second and so far only sequel, even though he's working on Avatar. Uh, his previous sequel, Aliens, did a very similar thing to Alien where it both it both amped everything up and toned it down in a way to make it more accessible to kind of a younger audience. Um, it through child, you know, it's another one where there's a child actor, a child character that is a focal point that is also then there's a maternal relationship, a, a maternal substitute relationship in aliens with Newt and Ripley. And then there's a paternal relationship substitute here in Terminator two with uh, John Connor and the T-800. It's a, it's an interesting kind of like through line between those two that James Cameron just it, it had this talent for, for taking a sequel and kind of blowing it up without not seeing unwieldy and not, not seeming bloated, even though it, it could easily be that with all of these elements. He, man, I, I, I think people like to rag on James Cameron, but it is you cannot forget just how strong his run was and how, how great he was at doing this in the 80s and 90s. I think he is very clever because, as you said, both Terminator and the original Alien are horror films and they're quite self-contained. And he understood, or from what I gather, he understood that you need to up the game and change genre almost. And I believe that's why so it goes both go from these horror films to almost these action films but he still keeps that family drama intertwined with it and therefore people still relate to the characters you know you've got these quiet tender moments in both Terminator 2 and in Aliens where it is about humanity and it is about family and because he's got them people go okay I can relate to x y and z and then in the next scene they're like oh shit, that just blew up, this is great. And it's that excitement again, you know, and he be, that's what he, he does very well, or did very well. We'll see, it'll be interesting with the sequel to Avatar in relation to how much is it the same but more, or will he change up again? Will it become this different genre? So uh, do you have anything else you want to say really quick? Oof, I think we've almost, I guess, I mean, the only other thing for huh. me would maybe be um, just Sarah Connor's transformation you know, from the first film to the second, she's this hardened, cold, tough figure. And she's obviously became that to protect her son and the world. But all John wants is a hug. There's that scene in the back of the car with a really bad green screen where she says, come here. And he moves forward to be embraced with a hug and she checks him for bullet wounds. And it's just so sad that he just yeah. wants a hug from his mum. He wants to be a child in that moment and doesn't get it. But her performance is great. That transform transformation is fantastic. It's very similar, I guess, to Ripley. She was very strong in the first one, the first Alien, but she's even stronger in the second. It is amazing to me that Linda Hamilton was not even nominated for an Oscar for this movie. And, I mean, the Academy Awards, they're, we can talk a lot. We don't need to about how... They don't really mean anything, but her performance in this, she is so much 
tightly wound energy. And she is so forceful in everything in this movie. There's just so, so much going on behind her eyes and in her, her performance and how she swings back and forth at times because she's clearly she's clearly been preparing for something bad for a long time, but she's also quite out of her mind as well. Like when yeah. she is swearing at Dyson's family and like really about to kill him, it, she's frightening. Even even if we know why she's doing what she's doing, it is a frightening performance and very powerful. I, I was hoping, I don't know if you've seen Dark Fate, but I was hoping for that rawness again and it turned her into almost this Hollywood action star like cliche in Dark Fate. That's how I felt anyway. But in this, there's so much rawness to her performance and that's what makes it scary. Dark Fate, what I'll say about Dark Fate is it would have been much better if it had been Terminator 3. If none of the other Terminators had existed, Dark Fate would actually be okay. But as it is, yep. it's it's still, as much as it's trying to rewrite or write out of history those other sequels, it is still just kind of doing stuff we've seen in all those sequels. Yeah. Terminator 3, I had too much comedy in it where he takes out like the star glasses and the talk to the hand that he learns from the stripper and the scene with the TX and she like makes her boobs grow to impress the police officer to get away. If they removed maybe 20 minutes of that film, I actually think it would be okay. I think Salvation doesn't get enough credit because it took a chance to be the only one set in this post-apocalyptic future. And then to me, the problem with Salvation, Genesis and Dark Fate is they're trying to set up more. Just make one film. And if it does well, have your sequel to it. Like stop trying to do this trilogy thing because that's where it's failing. Yeah. It's trying to do this Lord of the Rings epic battle, but it can't get the first one off the ground. I I, I felt uh, Salvation was just a little bit dull. Uh, I, I don't even remember, like, a, that's the one I remember the least, even though it's the one I was the most excited for out of them. Well, it um, took it took elements, well, sorry, Dark Fate, sorry, Dark Fate took elements from that because that was the first one to even try this part machine, part human. Yeah. And th so they took elements from that as well. And then, let's say, um, Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, I like the ending a lot. The ending did a lot for that to redeem the movie for me. The idea that it, it it's all just kind of futile, like running around on a chessboard. It's all going to end the same way. You can't really avoid it. And yeah, I, I kind of like that. I like that idea that the hope lies on the other side of what we mm -hmm. can't avoid. Like we can't avoid Judgment Day, but on the other side of that, if we play our cards right there is where hope is. Genesis, we talked about it. It's like a mess. It's a it's a huge mess. And then, uh, yeah, Dark Fate, like, I enjoyed, but I just kept thinking, like, I've seen all of this before. It'd be more impressive if this isn't just stuff we've seen in other movies that they're trying to erase. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I do agree. The ending, I would probably say Terminator 3 is the strongest ending out of all the films. Um, I think they, it was a great twist that I actually never seen coming, so... Yeah. Oh, spoilers. I, I, I think everybody <laughs> listening to this is going to know that we're spoiling stuff. Yeah. Um, so I think that does it for Terminator, Terminator 2. Yeah. Can uh, I ask one, uh, just a question on your thoughts on three things that annoy me about Terminator 2? And I just want to know your thoughts on it real quickly. Oh, okay. Why do the Terminators not speak when they're in their endoskeletons? 
What's your thoughts on that? So when they're skinless? Yeah, interesting. Maybe, well, I mean, I guess they wouldn't have human vocal cords. Because to me, it might have just been a voice box. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's something they just added to Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator. And they did yeah. something that isn't standard issue. But that, that doesn't really make sense either. I'm not Well, not then the T1, Yeah, then the T-1000 wouldn't be able to speak then because he has no... Um, organs, well, I guess, and stuff, maybe, does he? Maybe they, because when they're, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger isn't exactly a chatterbox in no. in the in any of the movies. So maybe they kind of all speak, but they're not speaking because Arnold Schwarzenegger only does it to kind of, like, maneuver through human society. True. And they don't, True. maybe they do, like, there's a scene in the first Terminator where Kyle Reese is having that dream flashback where Terminator infiltrates their yeah. uh, hideout. We can assume maybe that Terminator did speak a little bit, maybe to try and, you know, hide, but the ones that are just the endoskeletons, they have no reason yeah. and they're just going to go around and kill everything they see. And no, that's, that's good an answer as any. That's what's my belief, but it's just interesting to hear other people's thoughts. And my other one was, where do you think the control or the chip is in the T-1000? Because well, to me, hmm. it's this is a strange one because they, they never tell you like who or how or what's controlling it. And yes, it's supposed to be artificial intelligence, but if it's just liquid metal, then there's no technology in there. It's just, it's, an, it's almost more like an alien, isn't it? Rather than yeah, a robot. It's, it, it's almost like the thing. Like that point where yeah. part of its hand gets cut off and it walks up to it and it melts and reforms part of its shoe. That mm -hmm. that you kind of wonder, like, if you cut the T-1000 in half, would they each form little mini Robert Patricks? Would they, they still come <laughs> yeah. running after? Uh, that's an interesting thought. I never, I never thought about it like that. Like, where is its intelligence? I guess it's just kind of programmed into every little bit of it. And it's almost like a hive mind. Yeah, so it's, it makes it's, it makes a little bit more sense with the it was the TX was all nanobots, right? Yeah, so the TX had like an endoskeleton with the liquid formula over it. Okay, so okay. yeah, um, no, it was just interesting, and the chip always reminded me of a, a bar of chocolate. Just the look of it, yeah, it reminded me of yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> that, well, that and they don't seem very concerned at the end of this movie that the T-800 has just lost another arm and they've left it in another factory? Yes, it's the exact same ending. <laughs> yeah. The, well, the, the movie mirrors the first one so many ways with the, you know, come with me if you want to live line is repeated. Um, yeah. There's a lot there that's, that is repeating, like it's cyclical and also kind of like subverting a little bit. I, I, I forgot to bring this up earlier. It's interesting how the more advanced Terminator is is the smaller like it, he he robert patrick looks so not unthreatening because his face and his body language is very threatening in this movie but he doesn't seem as much of a threat as arnold schwarzenegger would be so it's a really good subversion and kind of dichotomy between the two in this i heard somewhere i don't know if it was james cameron himself it said it but if arnold schwarzenegger was a tank robert patrick is the porsche to that tank oh okay. like almost slick and um, he's like a chameleon, isn't he? I love how he moves in this movie. He's always scanning, like his head is moving from side to side as he's walking, uh, like he's a, 
like he's a cat surveying the, yeah. you know, the lay of the land. I also heard that when he chases right at the start, when he chases John Connor, when John Connor's escaping on the bike, that the way he learned to like run almost that robotic way, he learned to do it so well that he kept catching John Connor and had to <laughs> slow it down. <laughs> oh, it, he's he's great. It's it's almost it's a mostly physical performance in the way that Arnold's was in the first Terminator. And he Arnold gets so much more dialogue and more growth in this movie. But in the first movie, it's almost wordless. It's something yeah. like 14 lines in the movie or something like that. It's pretty small. Yeah. And Robert Patrick is much like that, where he's just completely physical and like really good. Like he's he's I don't know it just his his movements are really good. I, I really enjoy the performance. Yeah, it's a shame they didn't do more with Robert Patrick through the franchise. It is, yeah. No, that, that's true. I, I he he would have been a welcome addition. I think that'll probably do it for Terminator Two. I think so. You've got a lot of editing to do on this episode. <laughs> uh, I, I had an episode once that was four hours long, and I cut it down to an hour and forty-five. Well done. Well um, done. <laughs> can I have everybody's attention? I'm looking for the guys who murdered my wife. <laughs> One of them? Yeah. Stanley can take over. Thank you. I now have full control. Hi. You upgraded. Now you're stronger. Faster. Whoa, 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 whoa. Better than everyone else. Upgrade is a 2018 sci-fi action film from writer-director Lee Whannell, probably still most well-known as the writing partner of director James Wan, and for the films they've made together, Saw, Insidious, Dead Silence. In Upgrade, we follow Gray Trace, a proudly analog man in an increasingly digital world. One night, Gray's wife is killed when their self-driving car is hijacked, and Gray is left a quadriplegic. That is, until reclusive tech genius Aaron Keane offers to upgrade Gray with experimental technology. Now, this movie was kind of a big hit. I mean, a minor hit when it came out two years ago, but it was a big hit for, you know, genre fans, sci-fi and horror fans. And this movie, it's, it's taking inspiration from the same kind of cyberpunk, tech noir sort of things that informed the Terminator. But I feel it also has kind of a, an ethos and a very low-budget, straightforward, no-frills action style that makes it fit right in with those 80s movies like The Terminator or, say, even Robocop or... I mean, Blade Runner is all frills, but still like that kind of uh, aesthetic. It fits in very, very well. This is my second time seeing it. I, I believe you've seen it once before, but what do you think? What are your just like overall thoughts on the movie? Yeah, so... I remember sitting in work at like 6 a.m. and looking at trailers on my phone and I came past this trailer for Upgrade and I put it on and I was like, this looks amazing. I cannot wait to go see this in the cinema. And 
then it went straight to Netflix and right away I was like does this mean it's not that good what's what's going on so when I went in to watch it I went in with very low expectations and for that matter I was blown away there was things I didn't like but for the overall film it's it's great it to me if I was the producer of this film I would pitch it as something along the lines of Terminator meets Limitless, you know, with Bradley Cooper. Was it Bradley Cooper? Yes, where he takes yeah. the pill and he becomes super clever. It's like a mixture of both of those. But yeah, it's got that Blade Runner type feel as well. It does. There's an impressive amount of world building in this movie. Like I, I say it's very straightforward and no frills because it only pays attention to the main storyline. The storyline of Grey Trace is now has this experimental artificial intelligence implanted into his spine that allows him to walk around again, gives him much, uh, much, uh, a lot more strength. Uh, it can take over and he's a, suddenly a fighting expert, um, better cognitive, cognitive abilities. And so in a way, it is a very straightforward revenge tale. He is going after the people who have murdered his wife. It is pretty much like, like Death Wish. You know, like yes. it, he's just, he's on a mission to stop the people who killed his wife. And the movie never deviates from that. There's like, there are twists to to the genre, but it embraces that about itself. How it, it is not afraid to embrace some of the seedier, maybe even cheesier elements of being just a straightforward genre film. It is very comfortable being itself. And yet there is world building on the edges of this movie. If you look at all of the graffiti, there's a lot of kind of like, anonymous or occupy wall street sort of slogans that are spray painted throughout the movie like we are everywhere um expect us there's that bar where they don't allow most technology and yet everybody seems to have some sort of upgrade someone some of them just look like their body modifications like they they get bluetooth speakers implanted on their forehead or something and then there's also that hacker that he meets later in the movie who just before they run away says we can't let them win. I think we are implying the upgraded can't win, the, the people that are, are getting all these modifications to both stay off the grid and just have, you know, like guns in their arms and nanomite and nanobots in their nose, I guess, they like sneeze them out to kill people. Like, I Yeah, I mean, I, I took that line because that's a very obscure line in the full film that we can't let them win. And I took that more of that everybody is tracked and the government know where everyone is and she's perhaps maybe not tracked. So if she's still in that building when all these people arrive, she's going to lose that capability. So it's like, no, we need to remain anonymous and we need to have these people that are living underground and um, out with the law just so that there's some humanity left. That's what I took from it. So it's, that's interesting as well, isn't it? That it's two different. Yeah. It, well, I, I just like jumped all over the place in this movie but like just really got ahead of myself. But I, I, I'm, I'm, I kind of get the feeling that there is a larger conflict in this world that we are not seeing. We, however you want to read that line, I think it's kind of a, a clever touch. And I think it, it speaks to what I like about the world building aspect of this movie, that he's not showing us a lot of the world, but we can kind of feel like there is a larger world out there. Yeah, and other being just a revenge film the only other thing that i think that it deals not heavily in but enough 
is class. I feel like there's a real class system in the yes. film. So if we, I mean, if we look at uh, Aaron's house, is it Aaron? Aaron? The Aaron, but it's spelled like Aaron. E-R-O-N. Yeah. Um, his house is very vast and it's out of the way from the rest of society. And it's got its grand scenic view, which is ironic because he doesn't get to see it because he lives underground. Everything in his house is part of technology. There's nothing that you see that hasn't been invented through some form of technology. And then you've got um, Gray's house, which is relatively high tech. It would probably be maybe middle to upper class house in the future. So you've got Alexa, everything, basically. You've got Alexa in like 10 years. So you've got voice commands. You've got robots that make your smoothies. You've got charging stations for his wheelchair. You've basically got these Tony Stark touchscreens as well. You've got an ambulance that will phone. Eh, sorry, you've got technology that will phone an ambulance if you overdose. I mean, you've got everything that the average Joe would need. And then the lower class, uh, the new crown area, as it's called. There's one house in particular that Grey goes to at first, and it's very, I don't want to say poor, but it's its modern, as in, like, it looks very present day. There's nothing too high-tech in it. But you've got the touchscreen coffee table. And to me, that's kind of the way society is now, because, like, people can be poor, and they can come from deprived areas, but they still might have the latest iPhone or they still might have this big fancy 8K television. So you can still have these elements of technology within these different classes. You know, this film could have been really silly and split it down the middle and went, you've got your upper class who live with all this grand technology and you've got your lower class who have none, but it doesn't do it. There's like technology speckled through every class in this and i think that is great and it's not thrown in your face you only notice it if you're looking for it that's exactly what i have i have my note here is that the house the house where he goes it is it is meant to look kind of like a shack like it's a little bit run down if you notice it's the only house that we're in that has windows like gray's house from the outside looks like a, a regular suburban home but when you're inside it's a cave there's no windows uh aaron's house is out on that cliff very picturesque and beautiful never see any windows and yet yeah. we're in new crown which is kind of a suburb gone to seed it's it's a little bit more rural you can see like it's just not as clean there's windows though they they, they look outside yeah. they can see around and you're right he's he still has that touchscreen coffee table and a big tv on the wall which is very mm-hmm. much how it works today i'm not rich by any means but i've i've got technology <laughs> like yeah uh, and then you it, it continues to the road like Aaron's wife, she has a corporate job. She's the money maker. Not Aaron's wife, Gray's wife is yeah, the money yeah, maker. Sorry. And she has that fancy gold-plated self-driving car. And we see those a couple of times, but there's it's mostly recognizable vehicles on the road. It's cars that we see today on the road. It seems like the business class or the super rich have these self-driving cars on the um on the freeway. So it is it is a well thought, a well thought out distribution of of how technology would work because it you're right like these days poor people do have sometimes cutting edge technology 
and uh, poor people i that seems sound so derogatory but like no but it's right yeah yeah it, it yeah but it, not even that because the police the the police detective that's chasing gray through it as well she's got a normal car it's not futuristic in any way and she's probably not going to be poor she'll be working class she'll be a working class police officer so you're absolutely right it's it's not if that's what i like not every car on the freeway or well motorway is what we call it in the uk but not every car there was state-of-the-art or futuristic there was vintage cars there was you know cars we know uh, automatic steering that's that's just kind of like on the edges of this movie and what gives it a real good depth but there there's a lot of pleasure to be gained just from how simple and straightforward the plot is because once once gray gets upgraded he, he finds out later that the the ai in his spine can talk to him and he talks in this very kind of very kind of warm but distanced measured way of speaking it, it turns the movie almost into a like, kind of a buddy comedy at times which i find I find great joy in because they're, they're not necessarily telling jokes, but there's a lot of black humor. Once, once gray starts going on about his mission and he finds out that he gives control, like willingly gives control to STEM, the AI in his back to take over so that he can, STEM can help him get out of a fight. And the reactions on, on Logan Marshall Green's face as STEM has taken over his body in one way, his body is like, He's suddenly like Jackie Chan or Jet Li. He's just like kicking ass, knows all of these moves. He's doing these like like stand-up straights from being prone on the ground moves. And Logan Marshall Green's face is utterly horrified and cannot look. And he's just like, oh, oh God, oh no. <laughs> and it's it's never not funny to me. It's always like amusing through the movie. Until yeah. one point where it's actually quite creepy. When he lets Stem take over, he, he can't watch as Stem is cutting up that guy's face. Uh, yeah, that's where, um, <clears throat> sorry, that's where Lee Winnell's horror elements come into the film, isn't it? Like, you can tell he's back catalogue from that scene as well. But I loved Logan Marshall Green in this film. I've never really appreciated him. I've seen him in a few things, but to me, he, always, he almost reminded me of a shit Tom Hardy. Oh my gosh, I was watching this with my partner and I said, he kind of looks to me like a discount Tom Hardy, which yeah. is is an insult, but he, he's great in this. I, I I don't mean it as an insult. No, me, me neither. And that's why it's really ironic when it becomes this buddy movie, because it reminded me of Tom Hardy and Venom. But it's the first time that I've watched Logan Marshall Green and enjoyed watching him on screen from beginning to end. His performance is, is tremendous. And especially in that first fight scene, like he looks genuinely terrified. And like he looks like he's not got any control of his actions and it works perfectly. It is a B movie in a sense. It is like a good version of a kind of a B movie. And it is, there's a lot of, it, it's a very satisfying kind of storyline. Like, well, the revenge plot is just very, like, for for genre fans, can be a very satisfying story. Although I will say, the one thing, I, I, I think it's inescapable with this story, the murder of his wife is just a senseless piece of violence against a woman 
pretty much the only main female character for most of the movie until we get to the police detective. And it's only there in this explicitly, it is only there to motivate the plot. It is planned by STEM. It, we find out spoilers. Where do you just go all the way over these movies? I don't know why I keep saying spoilers. People know, but it is a murder that is devised by STEM only to motivate the male hero and allow him to, you know, continue his plan. It is it is a senseless piece of, of violence, which in in such a male dominated movie, it it does, especially on this repeat viewing, it it just made me a little bit uncomfortable. Well, how would this make you feel? Because I think they've missed a trick here. You find out that uh, Gray's fiancé or wife, I can't remember, is working for almost the other high-tech company that is the the, the contrast to Erin's company. I'm right in saying that, isn't it? She, yeah, it's Cobalt, I think, is the company. Yeah, so she works for Cobalt, which is like the competitor of Erin's company. Now, I feel like it would have made a much more interesting story if she was the one that survived the car crash and was implemented with STEM, which is this new technology that her company would love to get her hands on, but now she's been told it's illegal, so she can't tell anyone about it, and then she goes on the revenge plot because you've already got these two figures working for different high-tech companies and what would happen if one of them was given technology from the other? Because then you've got that almost, you, they could use it or not, but you could go down that route of corporate, corporate espionage. That's very interesting. That may have complicated the movie to the point where it would have detracted from what works about this or what is, what is enjoyable about how straightforward it is. But that is a, and that is an interesting wrinkle that they kind of overlooked. And I feel like, I don't know. And it'd be good to have a kick-ass female in that part as well, though. I feel like it wouldn't, that wouldn't have made it any less of a film. I feel like she, I don't know about that actor, but having the tables turned and it being the husband that's killed and having this high-tech superhero, I guess, I don't know, but this high-tech person, like, kicking ass as well from the other side because a lot as you said it's so similar to so many other films that maybe turning it on its head and making it a female would have gave it this new element or not then it might have felt like i spit in your grave or something like that yeah it would would have um i mean that that is also a trope as well i guess the term women in refrigerators it comes from comics where it's just you know we're, we're shoving the woman off the plot so something horrible can happen to her to motivate the male hero yeah it might just be inescapable in this type of movie because it is very much like death wish or it, it, it's the type of movie he is making but it still felt just a little icky it's watching it a second time knowing that you know we're, we're just watching this character for the opening of the movie solely so that she will be killed and the character will be motiva- motivated what did you think of harrison gilbertson's gilbertson's a performance he played Aaron. You know what? I <laughs> I liked him. He's kind of unnerving in this movie. I think you're supposed to be a little bit creeped out by him. Uh, but when I when I watched it, and just before he turned around, I thought to myself, "Oh, this is a good tie-in with Terminator because uh, Nick Stahl." <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh wait, no, that's not Nick Stahl. It just looks like him from a distance." <laughs> Yeah, they do. They do look similar, yeah. Nick Stahl is uh, John Connor from Terminator 3. He's not the most interesting character, but he does, he does a good 
performance and he is like unsettling. Like you don't trust him from the beginning. Um, my partner like rightfully figured out immediately as soon as uh, Asha was killed, like, oh, it was that guy, right? He hired them. <laughs> like, Yeah, I think you're supposed to think that. And then the twist at the end is, well, it's not he's been taken over as well almost and stem which running it but and that was that was a good twist like i i don't think i caught it the first time because i was just really enjoying the movie but then the second time i was like oh well why wouldn't i have realized it because stem is so eager to take over at all times it's very convenient the things that stem is doing so i felt like um the casting was a bit weird i felt like it should have been someone much older playing Aaron like Anthony Hopkins in Westworld because this technology is so advanced and uh, Harrison looks like he's maybe late 20s, early 30s and it doesn't look like he's put his life work, uh, sorry, it doesn't look like he's put his whole life into his job, you know, but I feel like it would have been more, I don't know, real if we had this more aged character that looks like he's put his heart and soul into the company and this is what he's created. I did like the socially awkwardness that the character had because that ties into something else that the more technology we have with Alexa and FaceTime and Zoom and whatever else, the more socially awkward people are going to become when they actually meet each other face to face. So I did like that, that he's living in this basically technically advanced man cave who doesn't even see sunlight i thought it was really ironic as well when he came out wearing a mask like just because of the 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 time that we're in now as well but yeah i i thought that too when he came in wearing a mask i was like oh this would have looked silly two years ago (laughs) but now it's like when he comes in and the guy's like i'm not going to give you bird flu i'm like well you don't you don't know that (laughs) you don't know what the guy's intention here you don't know what's to come um yeah, I don't know if he would have been better older because you look at like the the tech billionaires these days. And of course, well, I mean, we got Jeff Bezos, these people that own the corporations that are a bit older, but the people that are kind of like making it are or innovating are a little tend to be a bit younger, tend to skew younger. So I thought I thought that was okay for me. Um, yeah, I guess I was as soon as I seen the character the first time watching it, it just reminded me of harry and the spider-man franchise you know like his dad has been this tech genius and he's almost ends up running the company and i don't know that's that's the vibe i got like almost reminded me of like a harry osborne i can see that i can see that but i can also see from him being inside not seeing the sunlight that that's all he would do all day that he would just sit there and and tinker and and invent stuff and be rude to everybody that comes by yeah uh, maybe i just wanted a bit more backstory then maybe that's what's missing i wanted to know how maybe he got to where he is uh, yeah i will say that this is a movie that i don't necessarily need a sequel i know lee winnell said for a while that that there were no plans for a sequel he, he wouldn't be against it uh but that it was envisioned as just one movie and he's more than happy to leave it alone and i agree with that however it's also a world I could see being expanded on quite a bit and in a very satisfying way. And I guess now they agree with me because Blumhouse is making a TV series based on this that 
they announced just a few months ago. Yeah, uh, I, I would probably watch it. I probably would too, at least check it out. What I will say I, I didn't quite understand is how Aaron and Gray met up in the first place. Because Aaron or Gray is fixing up a car that Aaron bought, uh, like an old, um, like an old Mustang. I think it, it's a very, it's an old car. It's not a fancy new car, and he's a mechanic, so he's fixing it up for him, and he sells it to Aaron, and that's how Aaron, I guess, or Stem, kind of gets. He Stem is looking for somebody who hasn't, doesn't have any computer upgrades. He's looking for somebody who would be kind of a blank slate for him to take over but did stem just tell aaron to go and look for mechanics because it doesn't look like aaron is going to drive that car <laughs> like aaron I, I can't imagine aaron does anything for himself really I, I imagine he has the computers doing everything and would not would not be out driving a manual car yeah i i, I don't know it doesn't really go into it at all to be honest i do think it is he's looking for someone who is a hundred percent human or stem is looking for someone that is a hundred percent human and the film does something very clever here and it's ironic because gray is someone who hates technology but then after the car crash it's technology that saves him then he uses technology to advance his life and advance his goal which is obviously seek out revenge and he enjoys he then enjoys using that technology but then spoiler again but ultimately gets destroyed by it and i think that's a real good way of working you know that character arc to go for someone who will not touch technology is a very hands-on man fixing old cars to then loving technology and using it to advance his goal and his mission to then ultimately been destroyed by the thing that gave him life again yeah no it's a, it's a very interesting arc i suppose we should talk a little bit about the plot when he starts to when stem starts to take over well throughout the movie as soon as he starts walking with stem his movements are very like stiff and robotic his posture is perfect the way he moves his arm there's not like a lot of fluid there it's just like it's almost like he's making the minimal amount of movements to get the coffee cup to his mouth or whatever but once stem fully takes over the camera locks on to him it, it's usually used in movies to represent somebody is disoriented or in a drug trip where the camera is like locked onto their body so the backgrounds are moving around but their body is still when stem does that or when stem takes over for the fight scenes the camera is just locked on he is in the center of frame the entire time and the camera is right beside him or right behind him and it's really really awesome <laughs> it, it's yeah. in effect like my partner hates it in movies uh, they, they really liked it in this one it just looks really cool how the camera moves with with uh, gray at all times yeah so basically if if um if gray moves to the left the camera moves to the left at the exact same speed and with the exact same angle and usually the, what they would do in films is they would attach like a gopro onto them like using a frame and that would create that effect. So if somebody sways to the right, the camera moves to the right or whatever. So as as Aaron said, it's usually used when someone's drunk, you know, and trying to like find their way home or something like that. But what they did here, I read, was that they actually synced some sort of electronic tablet to Gray's 
stomach. So it's when he moved in a certain way, the camera from a distance would try and track that motion, which is really quite cool, but it worked wonderfully in this. And it worked wonderfully with his traumatised what the, sorry if I'm allowed to swear, but what the fuck is going on type facial expressions that he pulls. So as he's like going, what is going on here? I can't control my body. The camera is moving with us. So we feel the same. We're almost like, what is going on? <laughs> you know, like, it does make us as an audience feel almost in for the ride, so to speak. It is an easy observation to make that Gray loses his humanity as he goes along, as he goes along killing, because he grows more and more comfortable with it, with some pretty shocking violence. But the movie kind of posits that Gray lost his humanity as soon as Asha died, because he he seems really freaked out after the first murder, but he's also so completely gung-ho focused on doing all of this. The next time that we see him get really disturbed is that scene in the bathroom when he interrogates the um the one upgraded guy one of the guys that killed his wife stem is telling him just cut his ear off or or like you know cut him with the the knife and gray is saying i can't do it and so stem takes over and gray isn't looking away and we don't see what happens we just hear the slicing and the camera is slowly moving in on gray's face that he's clearly horrified by his actions but he's also just kind of like more than happy to give up control in these moments more than happy to go along as long as he can get revenge for the the killing of his wife. It, I mean, it's an easy observation, but I think it it is the arc of this character that he's slowly losing his humanity throughout the movie until finally, at the end of the movie, there is no humanity. Quite literally, the humanity is just locked away somewhere in his consciousness, his own consciousness, just hidden. Can we talk about that ending a wee second, actually? Because, again, I think it foreshadows that earlier on in the film. So, basically, he loses his humanity so much that STEM creates this virtual reality for him to live in where his wife is still alive and it was all a dream. And Gray seems to accept that. So, it's almost locked in his subconscious somewhere. But halfway through the film basically stem gets shut down and he's slowly losing uh, his movements and he's going to end up being back in a chair. So he has to find a hacker that can almost recode stem so that he can be fully automated again. But when he's in that room, there's these people, I think they're on like some sort of IV drip and they've got these VR headsets on so that they can be in this um, I guess it's like Wonderland. It's their own virtual reality where they're happy. And he asked the hacker, why would you do that? And she says something like, it's better than the real life. And he questions, why would you live in that? But ultimately, that's what he ends up doing at the end, is staying in this virtual reality because he can't deal with real life and what's happened. Yeah, I think the, the line is more something like, um, a virtual reality is less painful than real life or something like that. Yes. Uh, and yeah, the people are, are, I was kind of amused by what the people were doing because it looks like so many of them were just dancing in their virtual reality. Like I was trying to figure out what their actions were saying they were doing. I couldn't, I couldn't quite figure it out, but. But this is where the film, as you said, there's, there's so much more of a world there that they don't delve into because there's no need to, because it knows exactly what it's doing as a film. It knows it's a revenge film and it's going to stick to that, but it will give you hints and droplets of what else could be out there. And that's one of them. You don't see it from the point of view of the people in the VR. 
Yeah, which is why I kind of think there is there is possibility in a TV series because there's a lot here they can explore. Which is another thing yeah. that I think this has in common with James Cameron when you look at Aliens or The Terminator in that he he kind of thought out how things would work to the point where they can just be details in the background. He doesn't have to actually explain it all. Like the Alien movies, I think, do a great job at, a, at hinting at a larger universe, like other life forms out there, even though we only ever see the one. Like there, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, information we get in the backgrounds about what the further world could be. And I think this movie has that in common with it. But the film, the film does have a lot of heart. I know we're saying it knows what it is and that's it, but it does have a lot of heart and there's a lot of small emotional scenes and it can be quite heavy at times as well. Like after he's been in a car crash and he's now stuck to this wheelchair, his mum's like having to bathe him and then cut his hair and he just starts crying. And it's really interesting because it, questions the same things that Terminator 2 does. There's the scene that we spoke about earlier with Dyson's wife saying these machines can't love you the way we do. And in this film, Grey states to Aaron, well, it can't make a baby or it can't give you a family. And all this technology and help that Grey's got to support his new way of life in this chair, and he doesn't want any of that. He just wants a hug from his mum or he just wants his wife back. And that's where it's got a bit of heart you know it could have just turned into this all-out action b-movie flick but it's got these emotional moments that i would say elevates it that wee bit more the moments when that you were talking about when his mother is taking care of him and there's that scene where she's like rubbing it or washing his back and he 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 vomits and he can't do anything about it she has to like pull him back and she's trying to clear whatever the obstruction is and then later, you know, the haircut and the beard cut and she, he starts crying. It's a very vulnerable moment for the male lead of an action movie to have. Yeah. That, entire, that entire sequence was very touching, I thought. There's also some interesting dialogue lines that watching it the second time round, I appreciated a lot more. Um, when they're on their way back, uh, sorry, when Grey and his wife are on their way back from Aaron's house and they're in the automatic futuristic car, he says, what am I supposed to do when everybody's got these cars? Because obviously he is a mechanic. And his wife says, sit back and enjoy the ride, which is interesting because once STEM takes over, that's exactly what he does the rest of the film. And another interesting line was when Aaron offers him the stem. He says, I'm not looking to restart my life. I'm looking for the off switch, which are very technological terms. You know, he could have said that like more humane, but they went with those lines, which I think worked perfectly. Yeah. And even the line where he's talking about that technology can't, can't have a baby. can't start a family, but that's That's very, that's exactly what we find out. That's exactly what technology is trying to do. Uh, technology is trying to become human to evolve and then we don't know what it's going to do next we don't know how it's going to live i actually never noticed that at the end so thanks i yeah i'd never thought about it that way that now that stem has a body it can almost reproduce and then it just needs to apply that chip into another one and so on and so forth that's 
Yeah, that actually works really well. And and yeah, now that everybody is dead, the cop that suspected him, uh, the, his inventor Aaron is dead, so nobody else can make another one. Uh, but you have to imagine STEM would probably be able to replicate somehow. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's got all that information, right? No, absolutely, absolutely. Um, do you think we should talk just a wee bit about the the AI in this film or the machines? Because I feel like the way if artificial intelligence was to take over, I feel like it'd be more like this film rather than Terminator 2. And what's interesting is with all the tablets and the cloud and Alexa, that feels more like how maybe AI would take over. And Terminator Genesis tried something similar, but it kind of fell a wee bit flat. But the tech in this film kind of scares me, you know, because we are so close to it. And it's also making us become quite lazy in a way as well. So we all the tech in this film, they don't drive. Everything is voice activated. The fridge will order the eggs that you're missing and then it's a hassle for his girlfriend to make a pizza. She's like, can't we just order one instead? So everything becomes this lazy way of thinking. And if we are lazy, maybe that's when AI will step in and just go, hmm, I'll, I'll, I'll start doing everything then. You're right. This this movie scares me more than T2. <laughs> Although as a 13-year-old, as a Sarah Connor's visions of, of Judgment Day terrified me. Like, But this this actually does feel much more possible there's people that are just checked out playing virtual reality video games there are people who are upgrading their bodies and using that for nefarious purposes uh there and then the rest of people most people just kind of are in between they're just happy to let technology take over whatever aspect of their lives they don't want to put the energy into it's interesting as well because no one in this film really seems afraid of technology. They either just like it or they don't. And that's the, where we are right now with technology as well. You can go into people's houses who will have an Alexa or they'll have the Google version and stuff. And then you go into other people's houses who just won't have any of it, but they're not, it's not out of fear. People just go with the flow or they don't. Where, whereas in like Terminator or these other films, people are afraid of technology, but in this, no one is until until the end i mean you've got the police using drones as their form of cctv with id chips and people you've got the charging dock for gray's wheelchair which is basically what we've got for our iphones now you place it down on it you don't need to plug in your charger anymore you set it down and you've got technology going wrong in the film and that's where it's scary so the car malfunctions and you can't control that if that happens in this film. If it malfunctions, it malfunctions. And people get sacked in today's world when technology goes wrong. <laughs> you know, that could like lose somebody their job. But if we keep going, it could lose someone their life, <laughs> as yeah, we see and, in this film. And we to send up a counterpoint, we have that bar, the the old bones, right? The bar in New Crown, where yeah. they have all these rules about you can't come in with any communications devices. They don't have a website. There's no information online about them because they, they keep everything very analog. But you'd like even there, you go in, that's the bar where the upgraded, which are like the, the, the villains of this movie, they call themselves the upgraded. And there's the implication that there's a lot more of them around the world. People that, you know, put computer wiring into their body to 
increase their potential. They put literal guns, like it's a Cronenbergian kind of idea, the gun in their hand that they load bullets into their arm. So they're, they're still there. There are people, like even the people that would seem distrustful of technology still embrace certain types of it. Some yeah. of that is just a blockers so that CCTV or identity chips don't work. Yeah, it, it definitely does feel like kind of like like Black Mirror likes to say it's in a world that's just five minutes away from ours. This feels like, yeah, it's just a couple of years away from being like it. Watching this, I was like, this is going to be our future. But there is some parts that took me out of it. Like, and I was like, oh, no, that's absolute rubbish. And one of them was the part where the 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 main villain or one of the main villains, he sneezes deliberately to release these like nano drone machines that end up going into the other person's throat and that's how he dies and and small parts like that took me a wee bit out of it you know i was loving everything in it i was loving the parts where if you've got cameras in your eyes and you die you can play back the footage of the last 30 seconds or three minutes or something like that i thought that all worked great because i feel like I mean, people are already wearing GoPros when they go out cycling in case they're in a crash so as they can show that it wasn't their fault. So this is like just another step in that direction. But the sneezing part took me out just a little. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that. I can see that because there are, most of the technology is basically a variant of something that we have in our lives already or an extrapolation from that. But that's one of the few elements that is just like, that is pure sci-fi. That is a... That is something that we can't really see in our day-to-day -day life, a version of. Yeah, no, absolutely. We're basically teaching AI with everything that we do on Twitter, on Facebook, social media. Every interaction we have with an app on our phone is teaching technology. And eventually technology is going to start learning and maybe we should be nicer to it. <laughs> and No, absolutely. I don't know how it's came up on my Facebook, but you know you get like Facebook adverts? Uh -huh, yeah. And... One of the ones that keeps coming up on my post is to game for a straight 12 hours for charity. I guess that's for a good cause. But I remember people would used to go out and go a run for charity. Now, now it's teaching us to sit indoors and play the PlayStation or the Xbox for 12 hours and get somebody to sponsor us for it. And with the VR stuff and upgrade, that's basically what they're doing, isn't it? Oh yeah, that's a kind of a kind of a dark thought, but yeah, you're totally right. What did you think of some of the set design in it, like Aaron's house and how the cars and stuff looked, the futuristic cars? I liked the futuristic cars quite a bit because they didn't they didn't go out of their way to look really futuristic. It looked like maybe it was a Tesla that they had put some panels on, like almost little hexagonal solar yeah. panels, maybe. So I thought none of the design looked incredibly out of place or futuristic. Like when you, when you see a sci-fi movie that really tries to just like imagine the future as being some completely sterile and, and alien place, like it, I'm, all I can think of now, for example, is like TV shows like Buck Rogers or something. And their music is just like, doesn't sound like anything like music at all. It, yeah. it dates so poorly, but I yeah. think the only one that has gone like really out of its way in terms of production design and stood the test of time is Blade Runner. Blade Runner still looks cool, even though it's not what we look like now. 
Yeah, to me, this was like a version of Blade Runner meets Demolition Man. From I don't oh. know if you've seen Demolition yeah. Man yeah, from of the course. 90s. The cars are quite summer with their curvedness and auto drives and everything is voice controlled as well. Even some of the changes, like you can see some buildings have like gar- rooftop gardens and a little one of them has a waterfall. And of course the drones in the skyline, everything else looks like, like it's piecemeal. Like maybe that building is a new construction from a startup and they decided they wanted to look really futuristic, but the rest of the buildings around it maybe look a little bit more run down. Yeah. Uh, so I thought the design had a very, like a very good look to it. I, it it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about inside someone's house. Like you slowly upgrade a house. So you might start off with getting the latest phone and then the latest technology. Then it might be, you know, the latest fridge that's now voice activated that can get your eggs or whatever else. And then before you know, 10 years down the line, that one house is maxed out and upgraded. Then it's onto the next building and so on. And it's like drips and drabs, isn't it? I will say that the interior design, Gray's house inside looked like a real bummer. <laughs> like I didn't, it didn't look like it would be a nice place to live. All the walls are like black. The lighting is bizarre. I mean, it's stylish looking, but I just can't imagine wanting to live there. Yeah, uh, it's clinical, quite clinical looking. Aaron, Aaron's house, I, I, I don't like that it has no windows, but was more interesting to me because it was kind of cavernous and he had all these plants and, it, you know, you could have like rain simulated coming from the ceiling. It just looked like that would be maybe, maybe cozier. You could make it cozier, I guess. I, but yeah, I, I really liked the design. It all felt authentic to me. Yeah, absolutely. One other part I would probably mention is how the film opens and it opens in this old school, almost vintage looking garage. And you see all like the mechanics tools, you see some decorative stuff on like the shelves, but everything is from the present day or the past or our present day or the past thing. You get the nice muscle car that he's working on as well. And it's not until he steps outside, you realize that we're in this future and the futuristic car pulls up and it's done really skillfully again. I don't know how they would have got past it uh, in the trailer, but if you'd put this film on and had no idea what you were watching, it wouldn't be until after that scene you realised you were in a film set in the future. So it was very stylized and done really well. Um, no, I can't think of anything else on Upgrade, though. I think okay. I'm, I think we've exhausted that one as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, let's go ahead and we'll take our next break. Like I said, just a couple of seconds. We'll be right back. We've got our top fives of the week. All right, so we're back in our theme. We're just going to continue on with the theme. These are our top five man versus machine movies. So uh, not ranked, no order. I'm going to go first. I got to go with a classic mentioned already. I got to go with RoboCop. Uh, The original, of course, Paul Verhoeven. Uh, The remake is probably not that worth mentioning right now. I was not a fan. Uh, But the original RoboCop... It, it's one of those movies that just gets better for me every time. It was like, I enjoyed it as a kid as just this like super violent, funny 
cool designed robots movie. And now as an adult, like with Paul Verhoeven movies in general, I appreciate the satire. I love all the, the satire of the commercials in there. I love his deeper themes that he's got and just like his directing style is really cool. Uh, yeah, Robocop. I can't, I don't know what to say about it that nobody already knows. It's a great movie. Yeah, and I had Robocop on my list as well, so I'll just carry on with that. As you said, it just gets better every time you watch it. As a kid, as a kid, and I guess from the UK, I didn't really understand at first the satire stuff that was in it, but now, even with everything that's going on in the world today, it's more relevant than, than ever yeah. before. Yeah. Um, without spoiling anything too much, I also loved Ed 209 in it, the other robot enemy oh yeah and i loved one scene and that was that the way that creature or machine is defeated is that it can't take a flight of stairs <laughs> and robocop can but yeah i could speak about robocop all day long oh yeah robocop i used to i got the criterion dvd it was um one of the first dvds i owned and i used to play it when people were coming over to show off my surround sound and I would go to the Ed 209 scene and the way he comes yeah. in and that rumble and the sound of the robotics, it always impresses people. It, that's a fun movie. That scene as well, where the guy gets the like acid chemicals spill all over him and he becomes this haunting creature. As a kid, that is the scene that I would always remember from Robocop. Maybe one of the scariest scenes I remember yeah. from my childhood. I I can't even describe these days how much that chilled me. <laughs> the idea of toxic waste like that. Oh my gosh. Okay. Uh, so I'll just go with my next one. We're, you know, talking about spectacle movies that we're not going to see again, I'm going to go with the original matrix. That movie it, it's it's a cultural phenomenon that we just don't really get anymore. I think it's only improved with age. Some of the, the action on it, like the, the fighting looks a little bit slow compared to how impressive it looked in theaters that first time but just as a story as a piece of kind of like sci-fi noir i i think it it's just as powerful to me i i still love it all the time i just recently showed it to my daughter she didn't quite get into it as much as i did but she <laughs> she thought it was okay i i think it still holds up yeah, and my second one was also The Matrix, so <laughs> that's absolutely fine. Um, but just talking about how your daughter didn't really get it, I think it's about because of the time that this film came out as well. Like, the internet was advancing. There was this whole idea of the government's watching you. They're watching your every move. So people could relate to that and what Neil was going through, especially at the start of the film. And then it just took that to a whole other level and blew our minds. And there's so many things that are meta about the film as well. Like we're talking about VR earlier and how they wanted to live in that other world. That's basically what this is saying. You know, it, it ticks so many boxes and makes you question or at the time of its release, made you question everything. It's that late 90s pre-millennial fear like we were still really nervous about Y2K coming up, but also it's kind of the last time, the 90s were the last time conspiracy theories were fun. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, and basically the audience has got too clever for 
we've became we had imagination back then and now we're so clever we're like yeah that probably is happening and <laughs> i don't get what the big deal is and in a way it's it's still relevant though like you turn around to someone in your house and go oh i'm thinking about buying a pair of adidas trainers and then you go on your phone and go onto facebook 10 seconds later and there's an advert for adidas trainers you know things like that happening yeah I have my microphone turned off on everything and that still happens. So yeah, yeah it's, it's ridiculous. And you're right. Like in the nineties, we, we would kind of imagine like, Oh, we're being watched by the government and everything. And now it's just like, well, yeah, of course the government is watching us or whatever. Who cares? Yeah. Like, we, well, that's, we just accept it. Yeah. And we used to joke about that. And now we, we realize that, we are being monitored, but it's got to the stage now. It's like, and and what? The, uh, how interested are they in a man that's sitting doing a podcast? <laughs> that's about it, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I I remember like, and it used to be like the way our information would be stolen. I remember watching a documentary in the late '90s about how corporations were using like music festivals and events at music festivals to kind of steal our information just not steal it but gather our information to sell to advertise uh, advertisers to figure out how to advertise directly to us and i remember thinking at the time like oh this is horrible that they're doing this and now it's just it's an accepted way of life we just figure like everything that we enter anywhere is going to be used to advertise to us and certainly people are concerned about that but it, it just seems like we've also accepted it completely well, yeah and another way to look at that as well is people go and stream films illegally you know if they want to watch a film that's not out yet or they just don't have it in dvd you know they'll type in jumanji uh, online for free into google or whatever and then they'll find a link to it and then as they go to play it these adverts will pop up like pop-up ads and what's hilarious is that's people advertising on these illegal sites knowing that they're going to find the right people there and it just shows you how much it's all interlinked and the system works to benefit consumerism. But we could talk about this till we're blue in the face as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, true. Um, okay, so I'm going to go with my next pick. I'm going to try for something. I'm going to try for something I don't think is... I'm, this was an alternate, but I, I don't think it'll be on your list. Is Nemesis from 1992? No, it's not. <laughs> okay. It's starring Oliver Gruner, kind of a, a French direct-to-video action star of the 90s. He's still around. The, the reason this was an alternate is because I haven't seen it in at least 20 years, but it's ridiculous how much me and my friend watched this movie in high school, and it's a complete Terminator clone. I mean, it's not somebody going back in time to save somebody else, but it's it's definitely riffing off of the Terminator I don't have a lot to say about it because I, I haven't seen it in so long. I just know uh, this is a movie. I, I, I keep seeing it streaming and I'm like, oh, I should watch that again because it was such a big part of my high school years for some reason. Yeah, I think it's got quite a cult following, hasn't it, still? Yeah, it's got a bunch of sequels and I've never seen any of the sequels. That sounds like that sounds like you should go back, revisit it, and then leave your brain at the door and then just watch the sequels after it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll... I, I keep thinking... I mean, what else am I going to do other than this podcast uh, here in lockdown than just run through series of movies 
Okay, shall I go with my next one? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So my next one is Ex Machina. We briefly mentioned that earlier. Great film. Another film is self-contained, just telling a story of three people basically in a room having conversations. That might make it sound really boring, but you'll be trying to guess in every scene who is in control and what's happening and who is learning from who. Um, And basically what it's about is this high-tech, almost Steve Jobs-type character invites one of his staff members to his home in the cliffs to study this AI robot that he has created and wants to know if they have the power of free will. Basically, does this artificial intelligence have free will to do what it pleases? Or do we interpret that it's got free will? And you'll be guessing the whole way through it who's in control and who's your main character and who's playing who. Sounds really complicated, but it's it's a very nice film. Agreed. That was on my list. Um, I'm not, I mean, that, that was an alternate, but I, I kind of figured you'd probably talk about it. But no, that that's definitely a movie that I I need to go back and watch. I, I liked it a lot. I loved his next movie, Annihilation, as well. I want to go back and do like a double feature of those. Yeah, I preferred Ex Machina. Okay. The best way the best way I could describe the best way I could describe if you'd like this film is if you like the scenes in Silence of the Lambs where it's just Clarice and Anthony Hopkins, Hannibal Lecter, talking through glass, then you'll enjoy this film. Yeah, and and I will say also uh, for a movie that is pre- predominantly conversational, it doesn't lag. It is a I mean, it's a nicely paced movie that keeps moving forward and is always entertaining. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And all the performances are ace. Okay, my next one, I'm going to go with AI, artificial intelligence. That's kind of stretching the terms of man versus machine, although man certainly is uh, not treating machines very well in AI. Uh, That's a movie, I think, I think the audience perception of that movie is turning around. I think it's finally fi- getting its due. I think people are coming around and saying it's a good movie. I remember I didn't see it in theaters and being very upset at myself for not seeing it and just listening to people talk about how horrible it was that when I finally watched it on home video, I, I was almost blown away by how much I enjoyed it. I like People talk about how schmaltzy that ending is and it made me cry, honestly. And I don't, find it like schmaltzy or as cheesy as people say i think it's i think it's a really good and interesting mix of stanley kubrick's cold detachment and steven spielberg's more humanistic tendencies and the the melding between them i think came off a lot better than you might actually expect i can't even comment because i've still not seen the film (laughs) okay well I i will i will not spoil anything for you but i will say go into it with an open mind i think it it, it's a i don't i don't want to say it's an uneven movie but it's a bit unwieldy like it it really sprawls all over the place there's a lot of uh detours that it takes but it it's always fascinating i like it all nice nice no i'll check it out i'll check it out it was more the wee boy in it the i can't remember his name Haley Haley joel osmond yeah 
I really liked the Sixth Sense, but I couldn't take to him, and I think that was a bit off-putting. But I'm oh. actually now enjoying him more as an adult. He was yeah. in an episode of The Boys on Amazon Prime, and I really liked him in that. So I need to start that. It's very good, yeah. Um, okay, my next one, which is maybe stretching it a little bit, but is the original Alien. Because yes. when I was yes. thinking about Man versus Machine, the creature design alone is very machine-like, but also Ash turns against it. Ash the android turns against the crew, and it's all about the company using Ash the robot to try and bring this creature home. And it was such a unique twist at the time that Ash, the character, was really menacing and cold and a bit unnatural to watch. And he would take long pauses. And then when it came about that he was a robot, was just, it blew me away the first time watching it. So, and obviously the add on to that for the future of the Alien franchise with Bishop and Michael Fassbender's character as well in the Prometheus. And another movie where in the sequel, James Cameron made the evil robot the good guy. Yes. <laughs> yes, he did. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. Okay. Uh, so my next one, I mean, we just, I guess my last one. I mean, I'm just going to go with the Terminator, the first Terminator. As nice. much as I love T2 here, and I think it is an excellent, excellent movie, almost a perfect movie. I love the original Terminator. I just love how kind of down to basics and how quickly it moves. Like there's no fat on that movie at all. Uh, I just like the Terminator movies. I just watch them with my daughter. And um, so I'm, thank you for picking T2. It gave me a chance to watch it since we had just watched the first Terminator a few months ago. And man, that movie just holds up and it moves. It, it's such a, a great movie. Yeah, and I do think Terminator 2 is the better film, but I always say you couldn't have, you couldn't have Terminator 2 without Terminator 1. And for that, it has to be given credit. Also, it does what Upgrade does. It's relatively low budget, quite contained to just a handful of characters, and it just goes and it doesn't stop until you're at the end. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Nice choice. So what's up for your, your final pick? Okay, so I've kind of cheated on this one because I've picked kind of a character rather than a film, and I've went with Iron Man, but more specifically his relationship to robots and AI, I guess so, because it all changes for him in Age of Ultron. So if you go for man versus machine, he creates this AI machine to save humanity and it turns against them. But his whole arc, I guess, over the franchise covers that. Um, and although Ultron isn't the perfect film, I feel without that film, you wouldn't have Tony Stark's arc with technology. That is an inspired choice. I really like that. And yeah, the arc of Tony Stark is kind of man versus man through machines. Like he's always yeah. fighting himself through his his machines and what he creates. Uh, oh, that's a really good, it's a really good pick. I really like that one. Yeah, and I think who is it? Plays Ultron again. Um, James Spader. 
yeah, I think he's fantastic with his voice acting in that as well. The film is a bit too heavy. There's there's too much going on in it, but it's the perfect mid midpoint for his arc to carry him through to like the end result with his nanotechnology and the suits that he builds and he gets PTSD as a character from his creations, but also otherworldly technology. There's there's just so much investment. All for me, it all starts in Age of Ultron. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's a bit of an uneven movie. It's one of those ones where every once in a while, Marvel really comes in and is like, no, it, it, we've got to do this, this, and this, and kind of shoehorns some stuff in that uh, doesn't naturally fit because they need to make the yeah. franchise work. But yeah, I still, I, I do enjoy it. I do enjoy the movie. The more I've watched it maybe two or three times, and the more I watch it, I believe... It gets better the more you watch it because it fits in more nicely with the overall universe. It's kind of the same with um, the first Avenger. As a standalone movie, I didn't enjoy it, but where it takes the journey from there works works well. Uh, so cool. I think that's that's pretty much going to do it for our episode today. Do you have anything anything you got going on? Anything you want to plug? Send people to your uh, podcast or your Twitter um not really yeah it's just been a pleasure to be invited on and it's just great to talk about films and talk with other film fans um if anyone does want to follow me you can find me on instagram and twitter at hewitt g pro and if you're interested in our film podcast it's at film choose on twitter and choose film podcast on instagram so come say hello, listen in, give us some emails. Yeah, yeah, and it comes with my recommendation. I'm really glad it was it was just a random reach out on Twitter. I'm really glad uh, to have come across your show. I'm enjoying it, and um, I'm really glad you could come on. It was this was a lot of fun. Yeah, and well, thanks very much. That's that's kind, and as long as you can understand my relatively broad scottish accent and get past that you should be okay <laughs> i i think it's completely fine uh that's gonna do it for us for another week we'll see you next week if you're looking for us you can find us on twitter and instagram at two-headed pod there's also a facebook group page uh just look for the incredible two-headed podcast and as always if you go to metallicdicegames.com and enter the code two heads at checkout you get 10% off your order. They sell dice, dice-related stuff. Amber Keplinger, my partner, who has also done the logo for this show, has some enamel pins that are up there for sale, and they all look really cool. You can find photos for them. I posted them on Twitter and all that. Uh, but that'll do it for us. Uh, thank you until next week.